This is the Kindeo Equipping Podcast. All right, so we're going to get started. Um, first off, who, who doesn't have their book yet? Okay. Sarah's got, so here's the deal. I was online with a very nice oh, customer service okay. lady from Amazon, yes. um, figuring Anybody out else? where in the world are my books. Uh, they're not Anybody here else? yet, but we printed off the chapters you need to have read for next week. So This isn't if, illegal, because we already purchased If this nice lady, yeah, <laughs> and it's not 10% of the work. So this nice lady uh, said Over that here? the books will be in this week. Um, so I'll have those for you next yeah. week, all right? But that way you're not behind in the reading. I put an extra copy of the, of the reading and the kind of the class description, stuff like that. Um, I also put just a blank sheet of paper for you. If, if you're a note taker and that's just helpful for you, you can use that. I'm also gonna send out all the notes of everything that we talk about this morning. So that way you have everything basically that we talked about this morning along with, um, there's a lot of like scripture references that go along with what we're gonna be discussing. And so I don't, we don't have time to really look everyone else up and read every single one of them. But, uh, but that way you can, if you want to kind of sift through everything that we're going through. So um, if, you, if you read your part of the book, so this class is based off of R.C. Sproul's Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. Um, but it's also, if you're, if after either this class session or just this class in general, you're like, man, I would really love to take the next step to dive a little bit deeper. Um, what we have is kind of the suggested resources. Mm-hmm. You have the, thanks. I was gonna pick these up. Oh, thank you. I'll be Vienna for oh, you. Oh, this is, this is my wife, Sarah, by the way. Um, Sarah White. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> and all the college students in here go, what? Yeah. Um, so a lot of the content from the instruction portion of this class comes a little bit from, from this book, but a lot from these books. So the first one is Introduction to Christian Doctrine by uh, Millard Erickson, or if you're really fancy, Millard Erickson. Ooh. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, that's a great resource. Uh, the next one would be Truths We Confess by R.C. Sproul. These were in Jordan's car, so. Um, this one, <laughs> they, yeah, I left the dust jacket on. So this one is kind of an expanded version of this one. But the way that this is structured is that this is R.C. Sproul's explanation of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And he just, he like walks through it. So basically, you'll hit almost every doctrine in this. You'll notice it's a little bit thicker than the other one. So uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, and then this last one. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, this one is Herman, uh, Herman Bovink's The Wonderful Works of God. Uh, this is probably, and I'm not all the way through it yet, but this is probably one of the most worshipful, uh, I want to say devotional, but that doesn't mean that it's not deep. It's, it, you can't help but read this and not walk away worshiping God. Like This is probably one of the best explanations of systematic theology that doesn't just live in the clouds, um, but actually there's something about it that really stirs up the emotions in a way that's really worshipful. Um, if I had to put it in order, if you're like, okay, I can only read one thing to kind of go the next step with this, I'd go Introduction to Christian Doctrine, if you can read two, 
the RC Sproul one, and then this will probably be the third one because this will likely be the most dense, you know, so it takes a while. You gotta, you gotta chew on it a little bit. So um, essentially the reason why we, why we wanted to offer a class like this was because we kind of think through uh, equipping and Christian learning in two categories. One is biblical literacy, and the other one is theological competency. And so that's why we have classes like how to study your Bible, the story of God, classes that, that are very specifically getting us into scripture, because we want everything that we believe to be based on scripture. Now the other side of that is theological competency where we're zooming out a little bit from just looking at particular passages of scripture and going what does the Bible as a whole have to say about this and so um, this is kind of the first in that tract of theological competency so in essence what you're in is a really basic theology class um, and a real like practical definition of theology if you're like oh theology scares me I don't know what that means um, Theology, this is, this is kind of a working definition. Theology is a discipline of study that seeks to understand the God revealed in the Bible and to provide a Christian understanding of reality. So theology is a discipline of study that seeks to understand the God of the Bible. And this is why we say everyone is a theologian. It's not just, theology isn't just for, you know, intellectual Christians, not just for professional people. Everyone has a thought about God. It's just a matter of, even, even if that thought is that God doesn't exist, or that God isn't real, like that is a theological statement because it's a statement about God. And so that's why we say everyone is a theologian. Um, it's just a matter of, are you a, uh, a biblical theologian? Are you a good one or not? The reason why Sarah's up here, by the way, is to help add, <laughs> is to help add some like color commentary. Um, Sarah and I talk a lot about these things and one of the things that I've come to I've come to appreciate it. It's not that I didn't appreciate it, but uh, is her ability to slow me down and ask the question that maybe everyone's thinking, or to go, okay, can you can you explain that in like on Earth here? You know, Sarah's really good at that. So I've given Sarah a whole lot of permission to interrupt me as much as possible. Uh, so my first question would be, okay, can women be theologians? Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. I, and we should be. I, yeah, I wouldn't. And we are. Yes. Right? I, I wouldn't say that. Yeah, women not only should be theologians, women are theologians. Right. People are theologians. Because um, this is a common misconception amongst maybe more conservative circles would be that theologians are left to the professional men. Um, and mm -hmm. even like, and I know even some circles that I'm, you know, in where if one of my friends says, I'm going to seminary, a female friend who's going to seminary, it's like, whoa, stop, uh-uh. But seminary doesn't mean you're going on to be a preaching pastor. That's just another level of studying. So women can use our minds and we can be theologians. You don't have to go to seminary to be a theologian. It's mm -hmm. just, what do you believe about God and what's your understanding? Yeah, there's a book that I think the title is Theology for Women. Okay, it's and, not a and, bad book. And I, Danielle and I have I read hate it. the title. <laughs> I hate the title. I get why they did it, you know? But it's, it's kind of like Women of the Word, too. I'm like, that is like the best book on how to read come on, why is this just for women? Like, this should be for people of the word, you right. know. But, right, you don't theology like for theology people. for women because it, it, it might say that women are stupid. 
yeah, and need it like, like dumbed down. But right. women, women yeah. can learn and grow and have a greater understanding of who God mm -hmm. is just like men. And so it makes me really excited to walk into a class and be like, yes, there's women here. Mm -hmm. Like we have that understanding that we should want to grow our understanding of who God is just like men. Yeah. Um, so theology is is what is basically thoughts about God, learning about God, the God of the Bible. Um, a few other categories, kind of as we start off this whole class, is theology is biblical, and so we're, our primary text as we think through theology is the Old and the New Testament. Um, th this isn't to say that outside sources are bad. Actually, uh, one of my temptations for this class was to was to make it a study of the creeds, really, because because uh, we we have a confessional faith like. Like the church didn't start in, in 2013 when Candeo was planted. Like the church has been around for thousands of years. And so we have brothers and sisters who have gone before us and who we can learn a tremendous amount from and who have taken what the Bible says to be true and have condensed it in what we would call the creeds. So the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, these are documents that aren't meant to to usurp scripture, but really are meant to come alongside and explain scripture. And so, but theology uh, is first and foremost biblical, but that's not to say it's to the exclusion of any other helpful outside text. Um, theology is also systematic. And so rather than just looking at one, just zooming in at one verse, what theology does is it zooms out and go, what does the Bible as a whole have to teach about? this particular topic that, that comes up in maybe one verse, but we need to zoom out and go, okay, what does the Bible as a whole have to say about that? Some of the, uh, I, I would say all heresies have come from a, a misinterpreted understanding of one particular passage of scripture to the neglect of the whole of scripture. So heresies aren't just people thinking up crazy things. It's actually, they're looking at one verse, interpreting it in a certain way, and have blinders on to what is the, how does the rest of the Bible help me interpret that? So theology is biblical, theology is systematic, and theology is practical. Uh, this, is, this is probably one of the biggest misconceptions about, um, about pursuing uh, theological study, uh, understanding the depths of God in a greater way as he's revealed in scriptures is that, well, that, that's just kind of like you stay in this ivory tower that's kind of pie in the sky, like it doesn't really actually apply to real life. Um, but theology relates to, to living rather than just simply belief because, uh, because robust doctrinal truth is essential to, to the relationship between, uh, between the believer and God. And so a, a good way to explain this would be um, if, if Sarah weren't here and if I'm describing Sarah to you and I say Sarah's, uh, Sarah's five foot two inches tall, um, she's a woman who loves to play tennis and hates to cook. Now any of my friends would start to get really uncomfortable because while I've described probably a woman out there that exists, I haven't described Sarah. Because Sarah's not five foot two, and she doesn't love to play tennis. We've played tennis. It's not great. <laughs> but and and she doesn't hate to cook. She loves to cook. Like I've just described a different person. And so the implications of that, like if you, if you know us, you you wouldn't only go like you didn't just describe Sarah. Over time, if I continued to misrepresent my wife, who I claim to love, you'd begin to question whether I actually love my wife because clearly I haven't paid attention to who she is, and I'm not able to describe her accurately. This is why theology is so 
critically important is because we want to we want to ensure that our thoughts and beliefs about God line up with the way that he has revealed himself who he has revealed himself to be not just our own thoughts it doesn't matter what I think about God what I say about God it matters what God has said about himself and whether what I say about God aligns with what he has already said about and himself. That's why it's important to grow in our knowledge of God because as we grow in our knowledge of him, we grow in our love for him. Just like mm -hmm. anything that you get excited about, you start studying, you it's just a tendency that if you if you start reading all about wine and where it's come from and the history and all of that, the next time you might go to a winery, you're gonna be like, oh my goodness, like this is so amazing because you know all these other facts about it mm -hmm. when someone else who might not know anything might not appreciate it as much. Yeah. So kinda, the more we grow in our knowledge of God, the more we grow in our love for him. Kind of a way to say that it's theology isn't for thinkers, theology is for worshipers because it directly affects the way that we worship God and enjoy him. So, um, and the last thing, and we're gonna get into, like our first session here is about who is God, but uh, the last thing I'd say is that theology is communal. And so theolo theology uh, is, isn't just a topic of study, I, I'd say it, it's also an act. Like it's something to be done and pursued and understood, and it's meant to be done in the context of community. And so some of the best, uh, some of the best ways that I've learned throughout the years that I've grown in my understanding of God is to talk to other people who, who understand God and maybe have understood things about God that I've never understood. So, for example, Sarah and I, even as we're preparing for this class, and in other ways too, like we're, we're just talking about, it's, it's a conversation. It's not a whole bunch of declarative statements. Uh, this context can make it seem a little bit more like a presentation style, um, but what I don't want us to lose is that uh, what ought to happen and what is, what is a really beautiful expression of theological uh, study and understanding is for you to then leave this class and go, I actually want to talk about that with someone. And I want to go, what do you think about that? And how, how does that affect our lives? And how, what does the Bible have to say about this? Like, it is a real, this is, this hour and 15 minutes we have on Sunday mornings uh, will will do an injustice to the subject matter if it's if it only stays in this room and you don't go back to your homes to your dorms to wherever you go and begin a conversation with somebody hey what do you think about this this is what this is something that I read um, Sarah and I do that all the time and this is part of part of why to have a little bit as much as we can in this context uh, kind of a dialogue with Sarah <laughs> jumping into so Go talk to somebody about it. Go talk it's to fun. someone about it's it. It's fun to just like, hey, what do you think? I'll bring up a funny question later, but like it's fun to just like drop a random question and be like, what do you think about that? Like Trinity, like, okay, let's talk about it. And then <clears> it's just a fun conversation to just get things going, get mm. you thinking. So, so as we get into uh, this very first session, we have to begin with who is God. Um, A.W. Tozer has a, has a killer quote here. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He says worship is pure or base, so worship rises or falls as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. So our worship, one of my favorite pictures is, so I've been, I've been you'll find out if you haven't already really soon, uh, I've been impacted tremendously by John Piper in his teachings and his preaching and his theology in, in a lot of ways. Um, not exclusively him, but I, I fanboy over Piper. So 
Uh, <laughs> so, but one of my favorite pictures is uh, is a picture of someone grabbed when uh, when I think I think he was still at Bethlehem at this point when they were singing, and John Piper was. You look at him and you go, that man is exuding with joy, with as deep of joy as you could probably imagine. And what you would normally, what I've heard some people say is, I don't like listening to Piper because he's so serious and he's so, uh, he, he's not funny. He's not like, he's just, he just seems so serious and so like, like depressing almost. And it's like, wow, you, he's serious about joy. Like, he's seriously joyful. And so it's one of those pictures where it's like, wow, one of, one of the greatest you know, thinkers that we currently have alive it also is one of the most exuberant worshipers. And I think it's because uh, he, has, he has searched and he has seen who God is in the scriptures. And that has naturally produced a, a high view of God, which has resulted in a high worship of God. And so the reason why we start off with who is God uh, isn't because this isn't the answer to every question, but it informs the answer to every question because the Bible begins with God. The Bible begins with the assumption that God is real, that God exists, and that God has acted in history. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That It doesn't begin with an apologetic of the existence of God. It just simply begins with God. Uh, and if everything has flowed from God, then then the answer to everything uh, will be informed by who God is. So this is why we begin with God. Um, a lot of people try to find answers and solutions to their problems or to the, the question of who am I, what's the purpose mm -hmm. of, uh, of my life, and all those kinds of things. They, they try to find those answers apart from God, and that just doesn't work because everything has, flow has flowed out of God who has created everything. Um, one of the ways, so we're going to get into Trinitarianism here, so, um, but, uh, so who is God? I just take this from the Nicene Creed. Uh, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth of all things visible and invisible. Uh, the point here is, is that this isn't just a general God, uh, like a, like a, oh, I worship this God, you worship, it's, it's all God. This is a very specific God. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God who created the earth. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of Israel and of all believers and um, who has revealed himself through Jesus Christ and, and indwells believers with the Holy Spirit. Uh, he is God Almighty. I'm gonna pause you real quick. Yeah, I gotta quick. jump through a thousand notes here. You, uh, you've referenced creeds a couple times already. Mm -hmm. Can you can we just take a quick pause and explain what a creed is? And like you just said, the Nicene Creed earlier, you said a different creed. Mm -hmm. How many creeds are there out uh, there? <laughs> like, are are all creeds trustworthy? Like, if I just type in creed, right. in, well, yeah. you, you would get Creed Braddon also if you just from the office Google yeah. Creed. <laughs> yeah, for all those office lovers. Yeah. So um, explain that really quick. Like, yeah, real quick. Creeds are creeds are just a sum a, a summary statement of faith. So probably if I was going to point you to a creed that I go every Christian needs to needs to have this creed, know this creed, have it memorized is the Apostles' Creed. It's really short. Uh, I was tempted to have us recite it every class session. That's one of the things we did uh, for a class that I had. In college, and it was really worshipful because it was it was reciting once again who God is, what He has done, 
and how he has redeemed us and the future hope that we have in the resurrection. So um, the, 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 the a creed is just a summary statement of faith. Um, the Apostles' Creed is probably the shortest. You get to the Nicene Creed. Um, there's probably, depending on your school of thought, three or seven um, that are kind of like fundamental. But what I would say is as you read through the Apostles' Creed, like this is the summary of the Christian faith. If, if you don't affirm something in the Apostles' Creed, you probably aren't a Christian. And that's not because the creed is, is, uh, is inspired or authoritative in some in that kind of way, but it is because the creed is, the Apostles' Creed is the simplest distillation of the Christian faith. So if you reject something in the Apostles' Creed, you're, you're rejecting an essential doctrine to understanding Christianity, um, to where your faith doesn't reflect the faith that the Bible uh, has revealed. So, I don't know so if that's it's helpful. a statement of, like a summarizing of what the Bible is mm -hmm. all about. Yeah. yeah. For someone to just read through and understand. Yeah, yeah. Are there different versions of the Apostles' Creed? There are, yep. Um, there's, uh, there's a Catholic version. There's a, uh, I don't quite know the differences with the Reform one. There's a Baptist version. They kind of tweak some words, uh, you know, descended to hell, descended to the dead. Um, the, I don't think either of them change uh, the Holy Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, that's, a, that's a big C, Catholic, so Catholic meaning universal, as opposed to Roman Catholic. That's a that's that's Roman Catholic is the you know Roman Catholicism what a lot of people have grown up under when the Apostles Creed says the Catholic Church what it means is the universal church so the body of all believers throughout all time um, not the Roman Catholic Church but yeah so that's a good question um, all right so thanks yep yeah, uh, so God is transcendent uh, yeah you can. Forward. These are a bunch of notes that I, yeah, next one. There we go. Uh, so who is God? God is transcendent and God is imminent. Uh, here's what that means. Transcendent means that he is, uh, he is outside of us. He is other than us. He is large and um, uh, any other adjectives? The transcendence distant. of God is, is describing the bigness and otherness of God. If I was describing it to my seven-year-old daughter, that's probably what I would say. The transcendence of God is God's bigness. Um, the imminence of God is God's nearness. So if, if, if transcendence is looking at God through a telescope, like he is this large, far-off thing, uh, his imminence is God come to bear. So, uh, so it's, uh, it's um, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and then you have, uh, and then you have Emmanuel, like Jesus has come, God with us, like God with us is the imminence of God, is God, is God uh, being brought to bear on, on the world and on humanity. The, the most beautiful expression of this uh, that I can think of is when you read through Genesis 1, if you, if you read through Genesis 1, pay very close attention to the word that is used for God. What you see all throughout Genesis 1 is it's in reference to God. God created, God did this, God, 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 God. That word is Elohim. It's the general name for God. It's, the, um, it's, uh, it, it's not the specific name of God. It's, it's the word that would be used to describe generally a God. When you get into chapter 2, what happens is all of a sudden you begin to see constantly the Lord God, 
and that's Yahweh Elohim. So Yahweh, the personal specific name of the God of Israel given to his people to describe himself both in his nature and in his presence with his people, it's shifted in Genesis 2 to all, to, with the exception of verses 1 and 1 through 3. After that, you get, you get the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. And so God is described in Genesis 1 as transcendent in chapter 1, big, general, other than us, and imminent in chapter 2, that God is near, that he is personal, that he is a God that, that uh, not only can be known, but desires to be known and has revealed himself in a personal way to his creation. Um, one of the interesting things in this then is when you get to chapter 3, what happens is in the interaction between Satan and Eve is that it switches back to the general name of God. Satan refers Satan to. refers to God simply as Elohim, not Yahweh Elohim, not as the Lord God almighty maker of heavens and earth, just as God in general and Eve mirrors Satan's language in reference to God. So what happens in the fall is, is a depersonalization of God the creator. And that's an element of, of uh, how would you say it, of the temptation of the fall where, where Satan began to subtly uh, uh, lie to Eve saying not only is God holding out on you, not only is he uh, not giving you what you deserve, um, not only is he with, withholding a good thing, but he is also far away. And that's part of the lie that Eve began to believe, and it's reflect because it's reflected in her language, that God is just general, he's not personal, and he's, he's kind of just out there. Um, Part of the fall of humanity involved in acceptance of God as being general and far off rather than specific and personal, as being greedy and not good. So, uh, so God is both transcendent and imminent. And when we begin to disconnect those two things, we begin to, uh, we begin to have the faith of demons. Because demons believe in God. Demons have better theology than all of us. Um, but demons uh, don't have a personal God uh, who they know and love and follow and obey and worship. They have a general knowledge of God, but not a personal, specific, intimate knowledge of God. And this is the difference between Christianity and any other religion in the world is when you look at other religions, they're transcendent when you look at their mm -hmm. view of their God, um, but there's no other belief out there that their God is imminent, their God is personal, their God's come to dwell with them, Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so who is God? Okay. Uh, we've talked transcendent, imminent. Um, God is uh, knowable. God is also triune. So the faith that, that Christians have is uh, what's called a Trinitarian faith, that we believe that God is one in essence and three in person. Um, and these persons, that, that, that's, that's referred to as the Godhead. So God is one, in essence, three in persons, and the persons within the Godhead are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is God, God the Son is God, God the Holy Spirit is God, but God the Father is not God the Son. So they are, they are all God, and yet they are also distinct within the, within the Godhead. And so what happens here, um, as we get into talking about the Trinity, uh, some, a danger that people can fall into is trying to uh, over-explain things beyond what we've seen in Scripture. 
And so what can and that can kind of happen. Like the analogies that people. Like no. So water. Yeah. Egg. So a lot of times people try to describe the training like you know, it's like an egg. It's like you got the shell, you got the white, you got the yolk. Like it's all there's three things, but it's all in one. You got water. It, it can be it can be ice. It can be rain. It can be gas. Like their their attempts to try to explain what is ultimately a mystery, and, but and then what happens in the attempt is it actually undercuts the the truth of what we do know that, that has been revealed in scripture. So. Uh, yeah, be, be careful of trying to over explain things beyond what we see in scripture. Um, and so this is why uh, we, we, we have a rational faith. Uh, this isn't just a, well just, just have faith and just believe it even if absolutely nothing makes sense. We have a rational faith, but our faith is not without mystery. And I would say the Trinity is an aspect of our faith that does have an element of mystery to it. And so your tolerance for mystery uh, will often come arise when we talk about things uh, like the Trinity. So um, oneness, so when we say one in essence, uh, oneness doesn't automatically mean singularity. Okay, and again, this is part of the mystery to us because God is one in essence, three in person. Um, there is a plurality within the Godhead through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, another thing as we, as I mean, throughout this class, uh, the Bible never uses the word Trinity. You're not going to find that in Scripture. Uh, Trinity is simply a word used to describe something that we see in Scripture. And so um, don't, don't let your only theology, don't, uh, how would I say it? Don't, um, don't shy away from using theological terms so long as they're actually describing things that do come up in scripture. I, I've, I've met people who go, the Trinity can't be real because the word Trinity is never used in the Bible. And I go, Trinity is just a tool, a word tool used to help us understand something that is in the Bible. So don't shy away from theological terms. As much as we can, we want to use Bible language, uh, but when there's things in the Bible that there isn't specific Bible language for, often, Theology uses other terms to help describe that. So, anyways, um, the Bible never uses the word Trinity, but the triunity. So, if you think if thinking of Trinity as a triunity is more helpful, uh, do it that way. Um, is in the Bible. So, what we see here is in Genesis 1:26, we have God saying, "Let us make mankind in our image." Um, there's different interpretations of, on that, but my, my interpretation of that is that it's a reference to the Godhead, uh, because then you get to verse 27, um, and then God says, so God, then it says, so God created man in his own image. And so what you see within the context of two verses, let us make man in our image, both of those are plural, and then the very next verse, so God created man in his singular own image. So what we see here is the three in persons one in essence, or, or at least what we see at least is a plurality and then a singularity, both referring to the same person in that. Uh, Isaiah 6, 8, uh, kind of a famous passage there, but um, God's saying, who will go for us? Again, there's a plurality in God's reference to himself, um, and, and I interpret that uh, along with other uh, theologians, if I can do that. Uh, as, as referring to the Godhead and not a royal kind of we. That's another thing. Um, I'm flying, I, so. Yeah, you're flying, but it's good. Down. I think, I think um, it's easy as we start talking about the Trinity to go, 
I don't understand this and I can't explain it to anyone and this is just frustrating. Um, but the thing is we, we can find rest in knowing that we can't fully understand God. Isaiah 55 talks about that, that God is higher than our, our thoughts. God's ways are higher than our ways. And if we could fully understand God, we should be God. Mm. You know, if, if, we can, if we could explain everything about God and know everything that he knows, well, then we should just be God. So don't get so wrapped up in the fact that like, this is hard to understand. I don't get it. I can't explain it. We're on the first lesson of foundations of our faith and I'm just like, I don't get it. Like, mm -hmm. that's good because God is transcendent and he's almost all, also imminent, but uh, don't be frustrated by that because I think that's mm -hmm. easy. And maybe it's just for different thinkers. For me, I'm like, I have to fully understand this and I'm going to keep at it until I can just like get it. And mm -hmm. God is higher than us and we won't fully ever be able to grasp all of all of the knowledge of him. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, we can try to over-science it and try to explain every little thing. Yeah. Yep. All right, so let's get into the individual parts of the Trinity. Yep, um, so each person of the, of, of the Trinity is equal in divinity. Um, a, a way to kind of say this that's been really helpful for me recently and there's a misspelling because I made this slide. Uh, think thingins, thingins, yeah. Um, the way the way to think through the Trinity uh, is each each person of the Trinity is equal in divinity, um, but does have particular functions that are unique to their personhood. And so a way to think about it is the Father initiates all things, the Son accomplishes all things, and the Spirit applies all things. Father Father initiates. Son accomplishes, spirit applies. And what in one of the passages that we see this is in Ephesians one, when we see that that God has that God has chosen us, Jesus has redeemed us, and the Holy Spirit has sealed and guaranteed us. So what we see is God initiating in the choosing of his people. He's the initiator of our salvation. Jesus redeems his people. He's the accomplisher of that salvation. And the Spirit seals his people and guarantees his people until the day of redemption in applying that salvation to his people. So that's been a helpful kind of category. It's like, okay, so who is God? He is, he is uh, uh, one in essence, three in persons, and the Father initiates the Son uh, accomplishes the spirit applies. That's that's been a helpful framework for me in understanding uh, in understanding the Trinity. So, so we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So who is the Father? He's the initiator of creation. Uh, he's the one through whom everything has come. He's the he's set, he's the sender of the Son and the Spirit. Uh, and you'll see in my notes I've got some scripture references next to that. So the Father has sent the Son to accomplish his plan of redemption for his people. And he has also sent the Spirit by the request of the Son. And we see that uh, in John uh, chapters 14 and uh, chapter 20. If you, if you uh, as we get particularly into Jesus in, in his, his godness, the book of John honestly is kind of like, if you want an apologetic on the, on the God man who is Jesus, read the book of John, uh, especially chapters 14 through 17. Um, but it's all over the place. So God is spirit. So God isn't a physical being. God is spirit, which means he's invisible. 
um, and you'll see the scripture references there. Uh, and God is the one who, and I, I struggled to know how to craft this sentence, so help me make this better, Sarah. Uh, God is the one that Jesus, how do I say it? God is the one that informs everything that Jesus has done. So when Jesus says in John chapter 5, uh, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does. And here's why that's important. Uh, because Jesus is the, he's the image of the invisible God. I'm kind of jumping ahead. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the exact representation of God's nature. So Hebrews 1 verse 3. Uh, it's important to know that Jesus, everything Jesus did and does is a reflection of God the Father. That's important because there can be this kind of train of thought that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. So if God the Father is the God of the Old Testament, he's wrathful, he's vengeful, he, he destroys people, like he's just this angry God, then Jesus is the kind of, like, if that's the bad cop, then Jesus is the good cop. He's like the loving kind. He holds babies and let the little children come to me. And he's not wrathful, he's not vengeful. He's kind of like, 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 you got God the dad and God the mom. You know, like mom and dad there. Like, in, in what Jesus Depending is, on the household. Depending on the household. All right, that's usually how it is in our household. Uh, but what Jesus is saying when he's saying that everything I do is because I, I do everything that I see the Father doing, what he's doing there is, is he's also saying the God of the Old Testament and me as, me as the God of the New Testament, that's a really bad way to say that, but like we are not different. We are similar. What you see me doing is the heart is the heart of God the Father. I'm not doing anything apart from the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was uh, was to not only judge uh, sin, death, and the fallen creation, but was also to redeem it for his glory. And so this wasn't Jesus trying to coerce his dad and going like, no, 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 don't destroy him. Send me so I can do... Like Jesus wasn't like begging God to not do something. Like they... God the Father and God the Son were both, uh, uh, how do I say it, were, were both uh, wanted to save us. And that's, that's incredibly important. So, so if Jesus does everything God wants him to do, there's a hierarchy there and a level, okay, so hierarchy, we'll pause on that one, but like, a level of like Jesus submits to God, therefore is there like the Father is more important than Jesus? Sure, sure. That's a, yeah. Like. Okay, we don't have a lot of time. Um, there's a yes and no. So um, there's, something, there's something referred to as the eternal subordination of the Son. What that, what that says, and I don't agree with this, is that, that Jesus in, in both the fullness of his God nature and the fullness of his human nature, both those natures eternally submit to the Father in a hierarchy sort of way. Um, I wouldn't say that that is true because there is no difference in will between the Father and the Son. So it's not as though the, 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 nat the nature of Christ, the divine nature of Christ is ever at odds with the will of the Father where he would have to submit in some sort of uh, 
either unwilling way or different way than he would mm -hmm. personally want to do. Okay. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Um, Bella has a question. Oh, yeah. John 5, 19? Yeah, yeah. Now I would say, like Jesus, the, and, and we'll get into the, uh, into the incarnation here, uh, the humanity of Christ uh, did submit to the Father right. in, in going to the cross. And so when we see, not my will, but your will be done, what we're seeing there isn't, isn't an expression of a duality of wills within the Godhead. What we're seeing is that we're seeing the manifestation of the humanity of Christ submitting to the Father fully. Um, and that's necessary because that also gives us hope that we in bodily flesh can and should submit to the Father as well. So that's part of how I would explain that kind of hierarchy question. Mm -hmm. um, All right, so who so real is quick, Jesus? Real quick, who is Jesus? Uh, <laughs> well, let's He's just... God. All right, next. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jesus is God. Uh, Jesus can't be a good teacher. He can't be um, uh, a great guy uh, and not be God. He claimed to be God. Uh, good teachers and good people don't claim to be God and lead millions and billions of people astray uh, throughout the course of history uh, for no reason. So Jesus is either, it's that, it's that uh, C.S. Lewis liar, lunatic, or Lord. He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he truly is uh, God. And it's, it's who he claimed to be. He's eternally begotten of the Father and as the image of the invisible God, he's, again, he's the exact representation of his nature. We don't have time, I wish we did. I told Sarah last night, this is one of the more fun parts of this, like eternally begotten. So he eternally, mm. begotten means proceeds from. This is the element of mystery for us here because we can only think linearly with time. And so we go, well, if something proceeded from something, then that means that whatever proceeded didn't exist at one point. And what this is saying is that no, the Son has, has been eternally begotten uh, from the Father, uh, which means that the Son proceeds from the Father, but in eternity. So there was never a time where Jesus did not exist. So Yet you're he still Jesus proceeds from the Father. Jesus was not created. Jesus was, was not created. Yeah, which if, which this is, this is, people think this is new. Like, like somehow they're coming up with a new theology, like, oh, well, but Jesus was created. It's like, no, that's actually like a 500-year-old year old heresy called the Arian heresy. Like, that's Arianism that Jesus was created. And if Jesus was created, he, he can't be Savior because he's not God. Um, so he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. This is a lot of uh, what you'll see in the Apostles' Creed. Um, Jesus is incarnate, which means that he's, full, that he's fully human in nature and fully God in nature, and with the asterisk on the fully human in nature, I go, uh, he's fully human in nature uh, minus the original sin that is present within human nature. And so all of us are born in a state of sin because of original sin. Uh, Jesus was not born in a, in a sinful state because uh, Jesus could never deem himself if he was. So um, this is called the hypostatic union. If you want it, you know, one of those fancy words, what'd you learn about today? The hypostatic union. That's what we learned about. Uh, but, but basically what this is saying is that Jesus wasn't 50% man, 50% God. He's fully man and fully God. Um, and this is, this is really important because uh, the humanity of Jesus is necessary in completing the perfection of Christ. Uh, I'll, I'll say this and then I'll try to explain it. Um, the humanity of Jesus was necessary 
in perfecting, uh, in completing the perfection of Christ, that this perfection until the incarnation had not been tested of its genuineness in human flesh. So here's what that means. It means in Hebrews 2.10, what we see is that when it says that Jesus was perfected through suffering, it doesn't mean that he was imperfect and then made perfect. What it means is that up until Jesus became fully human, the reality of his perfection had not yet been tested when he was in that state. So Jesus existing uh, as eternally begotten of the Father and as divine as God, he was perfect. And then when you add in the 100% human nature, this was, the, this was a context that Jesus had not been in yet before, where his perfection couldn't have been tested right because he wasn't he didn't exist in human form until the incarnation so, so he was proving his perfection he, was proving, he wasn't yeah he wasn't fulfilling his perfection he was just proving that he is actually perfect yeah so a good way i i think i don't know forever ago when we were talking about this a good way maybe when we we're studying hebrews a good way to explain it is like if someone comes up and says like i'm the best basketball player in the world you're like all right get out on the court like, let's see it in action rather than just, like, talk about it. So Jesus is perfect eternally, but he's proving his perfection here on earth. Yeah, so the humanity of Jesus is absolutely important. One, because it proves his, the fullness of his perfection. And two, because, because Jesus came in the flesh, he also condemned sin in the flesh. So he took on human likeness became like one of us and defeated sin in the form of human flesh. And because of this, he triumphed over sin in the likeness of flesh, which means that because Jesus became a human and defeated sin in a physical body, we can also have the hope. We, we can also have the assurance that he will defeat sin in us as we are continually sanctified, which we'll talk about in, I think, two weeks. Uh, we can have that hope that he will continue to do that sanctifying work in us, and we can have the hope that one day we will be resurrected in bodily form and we'll, we'll live with God forever because Jesus has also done that on our behalf. So we won't be disembodied spirits in eternity. We, like Christ, we will be, we will be spirit and body united uh, with Christ. And so that's where we get to. Uh, okay, you just, I'm going to pause you again. Yeah. Interrupt you again. So you have said multiple times Jesus became human. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is not a created being, but mm -hmm. yet when he, this blew my mind last night thinking about it. Jesus before the incarnation was what? Spirit. Spirit. And then when he was conceived in Mary's womb, that's when he became flesh flesh yeah yeah that like i don't know why it just like for me i always thought that jesus was like bodily form forever in heaven and then just like zoop a baby again and then like you're back up like <laughs> he was like ant-man like, yeah. <laughs> i don't know i just that like just kind of blew my mind a little bit like how like jesus has eternally been begotten but God and his miraculous power created him. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we'll, uh, in those categories, and now what is Jesus now? 
yeah, he, Jesus is, uh, is ascended to the heavens in bodily form. And so Jesus is uh, seated at the right hand of the Father in human flesh. The, the ascension of Christ is, off, is often referred to as the forgotten act of Christ. The ascension of Christ is huge. It's not because he ascended bodily. He ascended in, 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 with human flesh, which gives us confidence. It, and when he ascended, it wasn't like he got past the clouds. Uh, and uh, I, I want, <laughs> it's, you, have you, you know when you watch like a, like a, um, a rocket. like a rocket go up, you know, and like the first stage kind of drops off. It's not like Jesus got past the clouds was like, okay, cool, now I'm just spirit from here on out. And Drop his body, body just kind of fell into the ocean, <laughs> you know? It wasn't like that. Like, he, he ascended to the heavens bodily, is seated at the right hand of the Father, of the Father is, is united in the Godhead bodily. Like, when Jesus ascended, a human body was incorporated into the Godhead. And so one way to think of this is that when... Uh, because that is true, that gives us hope, mm -hmm. assurance, and anticipation that we will also uh, be in the presence of God, that we can, that we won't just be disembodied spirits, that we will, there is a resurrection of the body, that we will be united with God in the heavens because Christ has gone before us as a forerunner of our faith in bodily form, and we can have the hope of a new heavens, a new earth, and a new body. Mm -hmm as we live with God forever in bodily form. And so uh, I, I think it was, uh, I forget, maybe it was JT English said that, that when, when we die and, uh, and are, uh, ascend to heaven, we'll be greeted with a human hand. And that's just such a beautiful, worshipful way to think through that because of the ascension of Christ, we can have that hope. Um, so uh, like I said, we're flying here. Um, this is the last thing we'll say about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is, uh, this is from, uh, I think it's from Calvin's Institutes, the threefold office of Christ, so prophet, priest, and king. Um, so Jesus is prophet. So prophets, as we look in scripture, prophets spoke to the people on behalf of God. <coughs> and the reality is, is that Jesus didn't just proclaim the word of God to people. Jesus is the word of God to people. That's John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And that word then came uh, in human flesh. And so he is the word of God to us. So Jesus is the true and greater prophet uh, on our behalf. Uh, so priests, so prophets spoke to the people on behalf of God. Jesus is God's spoken word to us. Uh, priests speak to God on behalf of the people and represent God before the people to make atonement for sin and intercede before God on behalf of the people. So uh, this is where we see the sacrifices in the, in the Old Testament, um, but Jesus is our great high priest. We went through that when we went through the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is the true and greater high priest who, uh, who intercedes for us uh, before the Father and, makes, and has made the ultimate sacrifice for us in himself before the Father uh, to make atonement for our sin. So Jesus is prophet, Jesus is priest, and Jesus is king. So kings are appointed by God to govern his people with kingly authority. And so all of the kings that we see throughout the Old Testament uh, are surrogate kings to the people of God. They're just placeholders until Jesus, the ultimate king, will come and govern his people uh, in righteousness. And so Jesus is, like Revelation 17 and 19, say he's king of kings and lord of lords. And so uh, what we also saw in Hebrews through 
Jesus being according to the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek, the king of Salem, but he was also priest of the Lord Most High. What we see there is like this kind of like combining of the king and priest function, which before the, the Abrahamic covenant wasn't allowed. Uh, Jesus is the fullness of every role that, that a person could have uh, with, with, before, and on behalf of the people of God. So Jesus is prophet, Jesus is priest, and Jesus is king. So All right. How many women just read that this last week? Woo-woo. We're, we're studying that right now. Genesis, Melchizedek. We just read that. It's fresh on our minds right now. Great. That's awesome. <laughs> There's a, yeah, whatever. Jen Wilkins is better than me. So, so um, okay, so. In like every way. Seriously. Yeah, we don't deserve Jen Wilkins. No. <laughs> All right, Jesus saying? is greater. Let's not be worshipful. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so, okay, so you're, you're talking. <laughs> you're talking Jesus. Um, Here's where I struggle. So we know that God is um, omnipresent. So when I sit, when right, we right. think about God is everywhere, um, is that God the Father? Mm-hmm. Is is Jesus everywhere, or is Jesus now because he's in human flesh? Is he just in heaven? So when someone says like, "Oh, Jesus is with you," like, is that wrong? to say or like how how does that work that God is like omnipresent yes (laughs) (laughs) okay moving on (laughs) this this is really where uh there's there's a there's uh, pictures don't this picture is a good one but um it's the is and is not of the trinity Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Spirit is God, the Spirit is not the Son, like that whole thing. Um, So when you ask like, is Jesus omnipresent? I go, well, Jesus is God and God is omnipresent. The essence of God is omnipresent. So so, it's not like God's omnipresence is just through the Holy Spirit? I I wouldn't say that. No. No, because omnipresence isn't only relegated to the person of the Holy Spirit. It's relegated to the Godhead itself. And so Jesus bodily isn't everywhere, mm-hmm. but Jesus, because he is God, is everywhere. And so so I so I, I think So it, is God the Father only in heaven? Well God God isn't that but God yes and no. God is everywhere. Okay. God is omnipresent. Okay. So when when you say like Jesus is with you. I think it's an appropriate thing to say Jesus is with you. Now he's he's very he's very particularly with you. There is a sense where the function of the Holy Spirit uh, is there's a uniqueness to it because Jesus said that it's better that I go away so that I can send mm-hmm. a helper. Um, so there is there is a function of the Holy Spirit um, that is that is more beneficial to us than if Jesus Himself in bodily form were mm-hmm. with us. Um, but I wouldn't say that means then that Jesus now ceases to be with us. Right. Um, but he certainly isn't in bodily form. Okay. That makes sense. I have a question. Yeah. I struggle with the term they're one in essence. I don't understand. Yeah. yeah. I don't get it. Yeah. I'm afraid of just Googling 
Yeah. <laughs> you'll get LaCroix. Yeah, you'll, pop up LaCroix. you'll get LaCroix all the time. Um, yeah, this, this is like, this is the best and worst way to describe a really mysterious thing. And so I think essence was, and it, and it may be better explained in the, uh, in the blue book there, um, I think essence was like the closest word they could get to to try to describe um, the, the oneness and the plurality. Like, because there's, for us, it feels like there's a tension there. Like, how can something be one and three and not be, not be only one or the other? And so the essence is, it does feel kind of like squishy, mm -hmm. you know? Because um, I felt that tension too. I'm like, I don't exactly know. Why essence? I do, like, I do think of LaCroix. Like, I just but can't it's help like it. God, is, God is one in, in purpose, in heart, in desire, in passion, in like God's, all of those, God is one in those, but he's three persons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like his, his, his will. His will, his purpose. yeah. Yeah, I think like there's all of that. I think wrapped up in there. Um, I don't have a better explanation. I wish I did. I really wish I did. It's a great question. Jordan, yeah. you got a better word to put in there? It's tough because you're you're dabbling in like that. That's the, the mystery of Catholicism. Yeah. You know, they they're all um, spirit in that sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like essence yeah. in that way. But it, it is it is all of those things. But yeah, I feel like we're hitting, you're like hitting those edges. Or like, okay. and now we gotta like mm -hmm. it is the mystery of God and mm -hmm. a human life. I don't think we can. Yeah. Separate. Yeah. So speaking of mystery, the one that I have the hardest understanding is the Holy, the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So, so the Holy Spirit, there, there's less explicit revelation regarding the Holy Spirit than there is the Father and the Son in Scripture. So I think there's, that's part of it that contributes to the mystery surrounding the Holy Spirit. Um, what we do know is that the Holy Spirit uh, is God. The Holy uh, So you go to Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira when they... Uh, says that they've lied to the Holy Spirit. You haven't only lied to men, you've lied to God. So mm -hmm. in, that, uh, in that instance, the Holy Spirit is referred to as God by the apostles. Um, the Holy Spirit's also incorporated into what's, what's called the baptism formula. So make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is incorporated mm -hmm. into that list as well. As It's not kind of like the third wheel, you know. Uh, the Holy Spirit is... Uh, God himself, um, and, and he's, the Holy Spirit is worthy of our love, our devotion, our worship, our adoration, our respect, just, just as much as God the Father and God the Son. The, the Holy Spirit is not God light, right? The Holy Spirit is the fullness of God and is the third person of the Godhead, um, and, which means he's not a force. The Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not a force. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. Um, and one of the ways, so, uh, and there's, there's a lot of people who would affirm that and go, yes, the Holy Spirit is a person uh, and not a force. Um, but one of the ways that we can treat the Holy Spirit like a force is uh, forces are, tend to be conjured up but can't be enjoyed as a person. You conjure up forces to, to accomplish the purpose for whatever you want them to do. Like, like forces are a means to an end. Like I need this force to do this for me, but mm -hmm. forces can't be 
enjoyed. And so the way that this can look real practically in the life of believers is we can inadvertently treat this the Holy Spirit as a force and not a person when we only see the Holy Spirit as, as a means to accomplishing something that we want God to do as opposed to a person to be enjoyed and to enjoy fellowship with. And so when we only pray for outcomes and not for, uh, this word's used too much, but I think it's probably like, if we only pray for the outcomes of the Holy Spirit and not intimacy with the Holy Spirit, we've, we've diminished the Holy Spirit to simply being a force and not a person. We can enjoy the, the presence of the Holy Spirit um, because he dwells within us. Uh, he is, the, he is the helper that has been sent to us and dwells within every believer, which is why, uh, why he doesn't dwell in temples made by, by humans, but he dwells within his own people. So we are now the temples of the Holy Spirit. We are, the, we are God's dwelling place on earth. Um, this building, is, which makes this building nothing spectacular, because we aren't in the Lord's house today. This, this is the Lord's house. And there's something unique when the temples of the Holy Spirit as God's people come together and worship together in one place. There is a uniqueness to that that I think is beautiful and necessary and commanded, but that doesn't make, the, make this physical location any more godly. It's simply because God's people have decided to gather in this place. If this place burned down and we went and met in that back lawn, now that's where the church is. Right, because that's where the Holy Spirit is indwelling His people. Um, a way to uh, so you, you, so that that's who the Holy Spirit is, third person uh, of the Godhead, uh, indwells His people. Uh, what does the Holy Spirit do? This this is a really I, I shamelessly stole this from Jen Wilkin because it's great. Uh, in describing what the Holy Spirit does, uh, it's rise. We we decided to add a few more letters last night. We, it's not reflected here. Um, so R-I-I-S-E, what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit regenerates. So the Holy Spirit creates newness of life. The Holy Spirit opens blind eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the one who we need to, uh, to regenerate us. Mm -hmm. uh, there is nothing that we can do to, uh, to want God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit acting on those who are dead enemies of God. The Holy Spirit regenerates uh, That's something that believers. you see in starting in Genesis where a pattern when you're when you're looking and reading through the Bible the Holy Spirit is the one he's the one that brings life like breathes life um, so even in creation you see that he breathes life so the ruach of God like the breath of God breathes life so when he regenerates us he calls us from death to life that's the work of the Holy Spirit yeah uh, so he also what? Uh, he also inspires. And so the Holy Spirit, so all scripture is God breathed. So the Holy Spirit is the one uh, who inspired the writing of scripture so that we could know uh, who God is. So there's ins uh, inspiration. Um, the act of the Holy Spirit is regeneration. The act of the Holy Spirit is inspiration, revealing the word of God uh, to us. And the, the Holy Spirit illuminates scripture to us. So the Holy Spirit has inspired scriptures. This is God's spoken word to us. Um, and the Holy Spirit uh, illuminates the scriptures to, so that we can understand uh, how God has revealed himself in the scriptures. And so um, we as believers need the Holy Spirit to help us understand what he has written. And so he illuminates, he, he, uh, he brightens it, he makes it so we can see it clearly. Uh, we need the Holy Spirit to do that, which is why uh, it's such a, 
it's a it's a necessary thing when you're when you're opening your Bible is to pray and ask God by His Holy Spirit to to show you what He has written in His Word because mm. that's that's a a function of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and it's such a beautiful assurance that we can have too that we don't read our Bibles alone mm. that that the Holy Spirit who dwells within us reads reads His Scriptures with us and helps us understand it uh, it's a beautiful thing so. Uh, that's R-I-I-S, uh, the Holy Spirit sanctifies. Uh, so the Holy Spirit uh, uh, helps us continually grow in Christ-likeness. That's the, that's the process of sanctification. Mm-hmm. This and is so, where the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is where the place. fruit of the Spirit uh, comes in here. Um, and so uh, we need the Holy Spirit to, um, uh, I'm, I'm gonna use the word empower, um, but it's true, so that's the E is empowerment. So the Holy Spirit sanctifies us and the Holy Spirit empowers us for obedience in godly living. Um, we, have, we have no power in and of ourselves apart from the power that is given to us uh, by God through the Holy Spirit. Because uh, the Holy Spirit was sent to us as a helper, as a counselor, uh, as the regenerator of the saints, um, the inspirator of scripture, the illuminator to our eyes. Uh, the sanctifier of his people and our empowerment to live in godly and holy living, uh, which is what is expected of us uh, as Christians. So um, all these things, uh, kind of wrapping it all up, this, this Father, Son, Holy Spirit, everything we've been talking about for about 45 minutes uh, is called Trinitarianism. And so the big question is why in the world is this important at all? Okay, if, if I say theology is practical, how is this practical to us as we walk out of here today? Uh, the first one is, is that uh, the Christian life is, is a life lived uh, under the power of the Trinity. So the Christian life is living under the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that every person within the Godhead is absolutely essential uh, in, in the initiation of our salvation, in the accomplishing of our salvation, and in, in the application of that salvation to us as we walk out of this place. We can't walk out of this room in our own strength and power and have any hope uh, to live the life that God desires for us to live. And so that's, that's probably like the broadest uh, application, like why is this important? It's important because it's like an, the essential doctrine to your own salvation. Um, the other thing though is, uh, is that the unity and the community of the Godhead is the basis and beauty of Christian community. And this is where that conversation about begotten is so, uh, so fun and interesting is because uh, what we see throughout scripture is that, uh, is that each person within the Godhead is always, um, I would say like deferential, like what you see is, this, is the Father constantly pointing to the Son. What you see is the Son constantly pointing to the Father. What you see is the Holy Spirit constantly pointing to the Son. Like they are, they are continually uh, glorifying one another as they speak of each other, as they live, as they walk. Like there is a unity in a community that is birthed out of a deep love. Jonathan Edwards' description of the Holy Spirit, like where did the Holy Spirit come from, um, is probably one of the most helpful, even though it's still insufficient because there's a mystery. What he says is that, uh, so if the Son is eternally begotten from the Father and the Spirit is eternally begotten from the Father and the Son, uh, what he says is it's, it's, it's as though the depth of the love 
between the Father and the Son was so deep that it actually created, like the spirit of their relationship is so strong that it actually created a third person of the Godhead. Created in quotes, because it's eternally begotten, right? Like in the same way we would walk into a room full of people and go like, this was the spirit of the room. Because of the way people are interacting with one another, the way, the way Edwards kind of describes it is like, because of the way the Son and the Father interact in such a, in such a uh, only a way that God can understand deep kind of love, it produced eternally the Holy Spirit. And so there is a, there is a love that is constantly flowing throughout each member of the Godhead. Now, again, they're eternally begotten. There was never a time when the Holy Spirit didn't exist. Okay, so this is where our own humanity comes in and understanding this. But the, the whole, you go, okay, who cares? It's because this is the basis of our Christian community. <clears throat> this is Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 where Jesus says, just as, just as I and the Father are one, he wants us to be one. Like the oneness of God within the triunity of the Godhead is the picture and the basis for why we, why we must love one another and value community with each other. Because if God can't exist without community, we can't God, God can't exist without community and neither can we. In the same way that marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, a Christian community is a picture of the, the mutual love, unity, and community of the Godhead itself, mm -hmm. which is why we ought to fight for unity within our church because it ultimately betrays the unity of God himself. It's why we ought to, ought to pursue and enjoy Christian community with one another because God himself loves and enjoys community within himself. And we are, are grafted in uh, through Christ. Christ is, Christ has, uh, uh, um, a, we, our adoption within uh, the fellowship of the Godhead is because of Christ and we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So um, that's the second thing. The unity and community of the Godhead is the basis and beauty of Christian community. And the third thing, the doctrine of the Trinity is the basis for our mission. So uh, the our mission. our mission as believers, go therefore and make disciples of all nations and baptize them. Like our call to our our call as being sent people is on the basis of God Himself being ascending God. Jesus was sent to us to redeem us, to be God's prophet, priest, and king to us. And just like uh, John chapter 20 says, just as the Father sent, sent me, so I send you. Like God was, Jesus was sent to us by the Father. The Holy Spirit was sent to us to, to indwell us by the Father and the Son. And so in the same way, we are to live as sent people because it mirrors and images uh, the sending nature of God himself. Mm -hmm. And so this is the basis of our Christian mission is because God is a sent God, we are to be a sent people. And that has incredibly practical implications. So every time you go into your place of work, into your classroom, uh, into your kid's bedroom, you know, to discipline them for the thousandth time, like, like you are to go as a sent person bearing the image of God, bringing the, be, bringing the ministry of reconciliation to wherever we end up going because mm -hmm. that is what God himself has done uh, in the Godhead. And so um, those are the real practical, like we, we're not just a church planting church because it's really cool and sexy and we just happen to like college students. We are a church planting church because God is a sent God. Like we are, we are reflecting who God is by being a people who also go. And that doesn't just mean that 
you're only sent if you go on a church plant. Like we are all sent even tomorrow morning as we wake up. But it also means that we take the gospel to places where it hasn't been taken and we reach people who haven't been reached because God himself did the very same thing for us in Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, um, so the Holy Spirit is important because it gives us, the, or the Trinity is important because it gives us the power to do what God's commanded mm -hmm. us. It's also important because we're supposed to live in community with other people as a reflection of God living in community as triune God and we're to be sent just as God sends. Yeah. So we don't want this class to be just like, I just learned a lot about God. Like it is practical, kind mm. of how we started it. Theology plays out in how we live our life uh, every day. Yeah. Um, so. so I know I have a lot of questions. <laughs> we have two questions, minutes, so. or <laughs> we can say after. But yeah. any questions for the whole group? Yeah. Yeah. If you wanted to, like base level, start to explain the Trinity to a four, almost five year old. Mm -hmm. yeah. How would you go about that? Because I get questions all the time, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah. that's when I feel the most. Yeah dumb because is when my kids ask me and I'm like oh, how did how did how did God create Jesus but Jesus is God and I'm like oh. yep and I answer the question you go and for it like, that's not what I asked yeah yeah <laughs> I think it's how do we explain the trinity to children yeah yep. it's important to to first off remind them that we don't understand fully like even just saying like mommy doesn't understand this exactly but God is one God. We have one God. We don't serve many gods. We have one God, but he's three people. And just explaining, like, there's one God. I, I love that last year at the family week. Like, we have one God, um, but mm -hmm. he is three people. It's difficult with children because their capacity for mystery is pretty much nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. In that sense, but they're also incredibly imaginative. So mm -hmm. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's, some, there's probably a grace thing there, too. But... Yeah, we don't quite know yet. That's that's what we've done, but sometimes they still I, use, don't I don't know what yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't know if this is right. So you can correct me if this is wrong. Sometimes I'll say like we have one God, but He acts as the Father, acts as the Son, and acts as the Holy Spirit. Like this is how He lives out. Like for a kid's mind, acting. I don't know if that's right way to explain it, it's, but it's hard to for kids to understand. Like kids. this is. They're like, oh, okay. He's the very fact that you're having that conversation, I would count as a win. So, <laughs> right, right. so anything yes. north of that is just like icing on the cake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're gonna we'll send these notes out again. Um, just, and you already knew this probably. Uh, this this is a content heavy class. Um, the purpose of our equipping environments isn't primarily to get you to know each other, stuff like that. But uh, at any point along the way, always feel free to shoot it, shoot us an email. Uh, Jordan's teaching one of the classes here next week. Jordan's teaching next week, and then Cody is uh, teaching the week on uh, sanctification, salvation, salvation. salvation. Um, don't forget that, and it's the dates are on that uh, reading schedule. There's three Sundays that we won't be meeting. 
uh, it's the two Sundays surrounding spring break and the and Easter Sunday. So just keep that in mind. Um, so after next week, you'll have a couple weeks to be able to um, to do the reading because the I think the one on salvation it has the most reading. You've already discovered that when it says chapter, it really should say pages. So. Uh, yeah, if, if you didn't, I'll, I'll have the rest of the books next week, if that kind lady was truthful. And, um, and so if, if you're behind on anything, you can, you can catch up over spring break too. So yeah, 